G'day, it's Phil here. Last week in the special series of Series 11, Series 11 of Game Changers, the podcast series, we had a remarkable opportunity of getting to know Bryony Scott just a little bit better. And we learned about her unconventional pathway to leadership and yet so many points of wisdom that I think are far from unconventional. Today, we're going to talk about changing the game. We're going to talk about wisdom. We're going to talk about all sorts of things. I can't wait. I'm excited. Let's go. Before I start my conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Adriano, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 11 sponsor? Thanks, Phil. Of course. We are proud to be partnered with the School for Tomorrow and Alex Bell at Portland Education in delivering a dynamic coaching-based leadership program called Lead Now. Lead Now provides the opportunity for emerging and established middle leaders to further build towards their full potential, contributing to the ongoing high performance of the school community they serve. Head to a schoolfortomorrow.com forward slash coaching. Let's go. Hello, Bryony. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good wherever you are. <laughs> there it is. Hello. There it is. Thanks so much for last week. When we spoke last week, you mentioned a bunch of qualities. You talked about things like grace and humility and the capacity to sit and wait. You talked about finding space. You talked about confidence. You talked about winning over one heart at a time. There's nothing particularly bold or radical about making these claims towards what leadership might be, is there? No, I think they've stood the test of time. So I guess one of the things we should talk about is changing the game because that's, you know, game changers, changing the game. You know. And, you know, listeners, we should should disclose that, you know, when we were had a WeChat sort of before we started recording last week, Brian was saying, but, you know, I'm not particularly innovative around what I do and this and that and the other and so on and so on. I think one of the things that we do is we fall into the trap of believing that we have to be new and different and funky and this and that and the other in what it is we do and how we lead without necessarily drawing on things that have worked and have always worked in the way that we build relationships with people. Who did you learn to lead from? Who are the greatest influences on your leadership? Just before I go to that point, I'm thinking about, well, with the leadership and innovation, sometimes it doesn't have to be you that changes but the world is changing around you and so people perceive what you're doing differently so everything is changing so quickly at the moment in our young people's lives and in the lives of our teaching profession and we now have so many voices coming down the pipeline at us about what we should be doing what we could be doing why aren't you doing this and you know this is working this is not working all from outside and sometimes and I'm not, I'm not talking about engaging in technology and, you know, different ways of educating because I believe passionately that it needs to be, we need to be having a contemporary educational delivery or offering for our young people. But also I think sometimes holding firm when you are being buffeted by multiple forces is in of itself a form of leadership and it's a form of innovation, but not necessarily because of what, of what you're doing, but because of what's going on around you. So it used to be, for example, that schools were quite conforming conservative environments where they the idea is that we would pass the information down from one generation to the next and it was our job as educators to make sure that these children had everything they needed to leave school so they could join the workforce that was already largely set up for them. Now I look at it and I go, actually, schools are countercultural. 
we used to be cultural, like we used to be this a form of replicating what was going on so that we were doing the right thing by the next generation. Now I look at it and I think, you know, if we behaved in schools the way they behave in government or if they behaved in the church or they behaved on the national stage, there would be loud outcries, but we hold strong, we hold true to the values that are being played out in every school everywhere about how you speak to each other, what you do when someone does something wrong to you, how do you apologise? And these are such old concepts that go back, you know, to the Greeks, to previous civilizations, you know, who have held on to these values. We're just holding on to them. And as a by virtue of that, we are now perceived as countercultural because we will advocate for how to apologize. We'll advocate for how do you include people. We will advocate for things that are just not happening outside of schools. So when people kind of go, oh, you know, what's it like they're out in the real world compared to schools? I'm like, whoa, 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 time out. <laughs> I think actually schools are the real world and you guys have got to learn how to behave. So so the innovation isn't necessarily of our making, but if you hold firm to what you know is right and true, then then you become as if you're innovative, as if you're different. We'll come back to that question on influences on your leadership shortly, but I just want to dig into this just a little bit more. As you know, I've got three children and people would ask me, have you changed as each of my children was born? And I'd say, no, I've just found a new part of my heart to give to somebody that I didn't know was there beforehand. Mm-hmm. And it's the notion, I guess, that there's a continuing part of yourself that you learn how to develop due to and within and for the sake of, and hopefully have a positive impact on changing circumstances or changing context along the way. And I think sometimes people lose track of that and they think that what you're doing has to be something that is unprecedented, whereas it might just be a tweak. It might just be a change in direction. It might just be being an adult in a world where so many adults abdicate. You know, it might just be standing firm for a child when they have nobody who is standing firm for them. You know, there are, there are things that we can do that are not a given anymore. And it's very easy when you have all these voices coming down the pipeline telling us what we should do and what we should be like and what schools should be offering to lose sight of or to let go of that anchor rope that we know is so fundamental to what we do in schools in order to tap dance faster for everybody else when they actually don't necessarily have a clue. I I do think it's important that we understand fundamentally why we are in this role and then we look at the context in which our young people are going to play out their lives but I I don't want to raise students who are homophobic or who are you know bullying or harassing people because just because that's happening out there in the real world I'm not going to have it tolerated in my school so so I, I will teach them a different way and I don't mind what other people think about you know about how how that plays out but once I know what my core purpose is and why I'm doing it then absolutely let's talk about AI so I'm all for it let's talk about micro-credentialing let's talk about all these things that we can do in education that are so fundamental to preparing our young people for a completely different world but if they're jerks or they're bullies or they they don't understand what it is to be loved and to be seen to be heard then it's irrelevant what else is going on in the world. And that, that world is so complicated, isn't it? Because, you know, you mentioned bullying and homophobia and not knowing mm. whether or not you're loved and cared for and feel as though you belong. And yet 
the assumption that we have in this world today is that we're sorted into good good guys and bad guys or good people and bad people. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes the biggest, you know, the biggest advocates against homophobia are also the biggest bullies, yeah. you know, and sometimes the people who have been the biggest bullies can then find that grace that comes from elsewhere and learn how to express something that is different. I want to, I want to talk about an issue in particular that I think has changed during our careers and significantly during our careers, and that is about our understanding about the role of women in society and about how we educate girls to thrive in their world. I have a concern at the moment around single-sex education that it's diminishing. I have a concern that, in particular, single-sex schools for girls are falling, and I think the reason for that is that increasingly, you know, relative to boys' schools, Parents still don't value the education of their girls enough, and they don't they don't see their boys and their girls on the same level. Maybe that's just me getting old and a bit curmudgeonly. Maybe that's just me as the son of a woman whose father in the 1930s and 40s fought passionately for as an immigrant for his daughter to study medicine, and who believed very counterculturally that girls could and should do every, everything and anything, and particularly in STEM before we even knew what STEM was. I'm still not quite sure what STEM is most of the time. There's a really good example, I think, of where schools have led the way in helping people to see what is different. It's a complex problem. You're you're a really strong voice in this area. Talk Mm. to me about the education of women. Well, I think it's against the backdrop of recognising that women in Australia are amongst the best educated women in history, and they are certainly better educated than many millions and millions of women around the world. So with that education comes an extraordinary responsibility to speak up on behalf of anyone who doesn't have the opportunities that we have here in this country. When you focus in on this country, there are inequities within our country, predominantly due to poverty and geography, and they are challenges, some of which are unique to our country and some of which play out everywhere. When it comes to gender, and single-sex girls' schools. The single-sex girls' schools, by and large, are not falling. It is the single-sex boys' schools that are going co-ed. And it's a really interesting question here because the cry for many people is it's a co-ed world. If you want to be normal, you know, you should educate your children in a co-ed environment. It is a co-ed world, and we still here in Australia have extraordinary inequities around women and salaries and pay and positions. And, you know, we, we look at the power imbalances around domestic violence. There is just so many things that we have not yet sorted out. So it goes back to the countercultural argument that goes, what are we doing about those inequities? So rather than replicating them in schools, what's happening outside? Now, this is where it gets a little interesting because I, for one, teach predominantly in all-girls schools, but there are all-girls schools where there are people who are still sexist, who are, who are still not addressing these agendas. There are people who run co-ed schools where they are acutely aware of the differential forces at play and work very hard at being able to adjust and accommodate for them. And so I don't think it's as easy as saying it's all about all girls schools or all boys schools or co-ed schools or faith-based schools or whatever, you know, like in terms of these distinctions. 
it depends so much on who is in charge and what the culture and the actions are in those schools to address the imbalances. Now, what I find really interesting is the number of boys' schools who are accepting girls after being told or that the boys' behaviour is so bad. And I'm like, okay, so what we're really going back to is this idea that you bring the girls in and they will somehow moderate or socialise the behaviour of the boys. And I go, that's fine for you, but don't you dare, dare come to anywhere near one of my girls for that purpose because that is not what they're here on this planet for. And I have taught in an all-boys school and I have taught in co-ed schools and I can tell you those boys behave for me. So there is absolutely and utterly no way that I'm going to be using my girls to socialise other people's children because they don't yet know how to say please and thank you or to treat people well. I then look at the history of women and how women have made breakthroughs in any areas. So if you look at, for example, in the area of medicine and you look at the history of the first women doctors who went through, uh, particularly in America, and they fought against the odds to be able to go to university. And if you follow Elizabeth Blackwell, who was the first American physician and what she had to go through and what she had to tolerate in terms of breaking new ground in this area. And then when she did graduate ahead of all her male peers, she wasn't allowed to rent facilities or rent rooms so that she could practice her medicine. And the way that she got really good was that she joined the Catholic nuns in a hospital and worked there. And history is littered with stories of women who, to get really good at what they do, have band together to get really good and then go back out and to hold their own out in the world. And I look at the all-girls schools and I go, until such time as you can demonstrate to me that women are going to be given equal authority, equal responsibility, equal pay, equal consideration, equal respect, then there will always be a place for pulling these young women aside and going, I need to invest in you, you need to know this. I, I run a year 12 class called Renaissance Studies and there's no assessments, no homework, no nothing. And for one period of cycle, I sit with them and I talk with them about the world. I talk with them about what power looks like, about what power looks like when it's being used against you. What do you do if your boss puts his hand on your knee? What are you going to do if your best friend's in a domestic violent, you know, a domestically violent relationship or a controlling relationship? How do you ask for a pay rise? All those things that might seem to be so obvious, but need to be taught to women in a context that it is not as necessary to be taught to others. So I look at this and I go, what is the measure of success? Well, tell me what your breakdown of boys and girls doing extension two maths is. Because I can tell you in schools where I'm at, it's going to be 100% female. And that's because there are no males. But I look at the co-ed schools and I go, okay, tell me, what's your breakdown? I look at the boys' schools and I go, how many of them are doing, you know, food technology or how many of them are doing textiles? So it's really questioning are we actively addressing in whatever context we find ourselves in, are we addressing biases and prejudices within our world and what is the evidence for that? So it's not enough for me to go, I'm a principal of an all-girls school. I have to be able to demonstrate that I am addressing the biases and the prejudices that are working against girls or for them. And I remember when I first came into Winona, I looked at our results and we were far better at English and history than we were at maths and science. And I just went, you know, so 
I mean, there were great results because of the, the demographic we're in and the school we're in. I, I get all of that, but I, I'm looking at it going, we should be at least equal. And we, you know, since then, obviously, we've done things like bring in engineering studies and all sorts of stuff, a, a subject that is 98% male, you know, giving young women the opportunity of being able to challenge the stereotypes that are presented towards them. So it's not even quite so straightforward as girls and boys. What I will say in summary, I guess, is that um, young people, both male and female, rise to the expectations that are placed upon them and that it is our responsibility to raise all of them with respect without those kind of biases and prejudices that are so prevalent in society. Thank you. I'm just going to leave that exactly where it is because I don't think I could possibly touch that. I'm still going to come back to my earlier question, is, which is who have been your influences? Like when I think about, you know, and immediately respond to what you've just shared with us there, there's a very coherent worldview that's been expressed there. And there, we don't develop that sort of worldview without a lot of time spending reflection, a lot of time spent growing, a lot of time spent making mistakes and also doing a bit of stuff right along the way. But we have influences along the way. So who do you reckon have been the biggest influences on you and your leadership? Well, um, once again, I'm not sure I think of it in terms of my leadership. I think of it in, in terms of me. It's not going to be very conventional. I have a sister who is quite seriously has significant intellectual delays and significant physical disabilities. And she's a beautiful woman. It never speaks ill of anyone. And growing up, the comparison between us, she's slightly younger than I am, the comparison between us was kind of marked. You know, I mean, I thrived at school and I looked after her a lot. We were very, very close. She really only went to mainstream schools in, in special classes and so forth. And our parents were really interesting because our reports would get sent home and they never even looked at the marks. They only ever looked at the effort. And it was a way of recognising that, you know, we had been born differently, but it was what we did with what was given to us that mattered to them. And so I could be in as much trouble as Kirsty if I hadn't kind of thrown myself into, into work and, and with the gift I've been given. And it's funny to say, I, I look back now and I think, well, who's influenced me the most? It's probably my sister because she just had everything stacked against her and still comes out smiling. She has people who speak to her like she's not in the room and she just you know, she has an intellectual disability, but she knows when she's being spoken down to and she knows when people, you know, don't talk to her but look at me. And and so you learn, um, I, don't know, I don't know, I think you probably learn about the humanity of people and, and that common aspect of them. And, and I think she's probably had the biggest influence on me in terms of how she's done life. Thank you. Thank you. Talking about humanity and talking about teachers for a moment. So to take it away, take the spotlight away from the details of your life a little bit because, you know, everyone needs a little bit of break from that sort of intense stuff every now and then. Exactly. And uh, I need to pull back a bit maybe. We did a, at a school somewhere, we did a, a research study with schools in South Africa and we asked teachers to think of a memorable professional experience where they felt they had a very significant impact in teaching, leading and helping students to perform at their best. And as ever with these sorts of things, you're never really telling people what you're trying to find out, never really sure what you're trying to find out along the way. But we found from the staff who responded 
that they had four major ways of categorizing their practice at their best. Okay. And I won't go through each of those four with you because like it's it's as useful a rubric as any to talk about how we lead in schools and what it is that we do to help teachers perform at their best. So the first thing that staff would talk about, and it's just 32% of them, they talked about the notion of relationship and connection. And then 31% of the staff talked about they do it through their pedagogical knowledge and expertise. And then 23% talked about creating an impact and making a difference. And then 13% talked about modelling character and personal growth. So let's talk about each of those four in turn. What can we do in schools to help teachers to understand how to build stronger and deeper relationships with their students that are going to help their students to thrive? From a practical point of view, okay, so from an overarching perspective, I go ultimately teachers have far more ability to influence each of these than they perhaps sometimes give themselves credit for. And it's very easy in teaching to slip back and go, well, I don't have the time, I don't have this, I don't have that, and to focus almost like on a deficit model around what you don't have and what you can't do. In reality, you actually have enormous control over how you present in the classroom about the messages that you send and the relationships that you connect and and how you connect with young people. So this idea that you actually can walk in and you can control the narrative, you control the words that are spoken and the tone of the classroom and the culture of the classroom, it's not a reactive thing. It's a responsive thing. It's you going in and having that iterative kind of relationship happening. That that sits squarely in the at the feet of the teacher. It's their responsibility to walk in and take the weather with them. And, and I guess one of the things I'm constantly challenging is, and this is an extreme expression, is the learned helplessness around teaching that you have no way of being able oh, to. Look, all you have to do is go on Twitter and you yeah. just see it there. It is an yes. absolute toxin that exists within our system. It's a bit, you know, I think it was in our conversation last week where you talked about the responsibility of the individual towards their own well-being, and yet there are thousands and thousands of teachers out there who believe that every single thing the yep. system needs to take care of for them, and the system hasn't. And if there's one thing wrong, then it's evidence of a system that is fundamentally corrupt and wrong and this and that and the other. And you just sit there and you go, stop, stop, stop. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. all wrong. It's all wrong. The world doesn't work that way. No, and I think I can often tell you can you can tell by the number of, you know, it's a silly measure, but if you do something, people expect to be thanked. And, and I think it's a reasonable expectation in the community when you do things to be thanked. They don't think about thanking up. <laughs> so So what they want is to be thanked, but they won't thank down or they won't, you know, thank themselves. They want other people to go in. And now this is a stereotype and not everyone is like this at all. And, in fact, it's very interesting watching this new generation of young teachers coming through, how far, how they have a very strong understanding of their ability to influence their world. I've had a couple of meetings in the last couple of weeks with very young teachers coming out of university around what they're looking for or, or person second year and recognizing kind of how gratitude plays out in any community gratitude never goes one way it's always around recognizing what other people have done to enable you to do your job and then recognizing that you also enable people or you disable them to be able to do their job so it's a very symbiotic kind of relationship 
So this, this concept of connecting and having a relationship with students and how can you do this? The first thing I would say is one, the control is squarely with you. So if you are struggling with connection, what are you going to do about it? And as a principal, how can I help you do that? But it's not my job to come up with all the answers. It's your job to think about what's working, what's not. And then let's, I'm happy to talk together about, well, what are you going to do about that? The second thing I would say is that we're often scared of young people and even people who are teachers who, who are in the profession, they get scared of young people they get scared of their emotions, they get scared of their reactions, their behaviours. And there, there is that sense of like you are the adult and and how you overcome your anxiety around how you interact with children or if they do just do one thing wrong that we just kind of clamp down on them so hard. And I go, you know, they're probably having a bad day. They didn't wake up in the morning, put their feet on the floor and go, you know, how can I screw up today? How can I get my teacher mad at me? So what are you going to do about kind of engaging with where this child is at? The number of times I have made the mistake of getting grumpy with a child who's arrived late at school only to have them kind of go, it's been the worst morning, you know, and I'm like, oh, of course, I've had mornings like that too. But we somehow expect them to come to school and to be, you know, engaged in their learning and happy and bright. And, and no, they slept in, the alarm went off, dad yelled, you know, the car ran out of petrol, you know, the dog died, you know, but they're still, we expect them to come and, and just be kind of have their game face on. So that that relationship and connection, it is a mesmerizingly fantastic generation coming through. They are such interesting people. They are experiencing things very differently than we did. They're still children and they still need wisdom, but to sit down and listen to them talk about things that they believe are happening or their views on the world is just an extraordinary gift. And so relationship and connection, I go, don't be scared. You have the ability to do this. If, you need, if you're stuck, then reach out and get help. Watch experienced teachers. How do they interact? Go and sit in on someone else's classes. Hang with kids outside of the classroom is a really big one. Having conversations in the playground. So when you're on playground duty, you're not just there kind of like, you know, with your high-vis best yes. around. And, you know, this is one of the things that's really irritating me about the conversation about teachers and their workloads and things like that at the moment where people just jump to this thing about, well, well, just take our playground duty and don't do bus stop duty and things like that without realising that that's where the most important breakthrough conversations and relationships are formed, which you can then bring back inside of the classroom. And we've got the evidence from that, from our research around that, you know, that 71% of all students report that their, their most important breakthrough character development occurs outside the classroom, usually either in the yard or in co-curricular or on a school trip and almost always involving a relationship with a significant adult or a peer or both, which yeah. they then bring into the classroom. You take that out of people's responsibilities and we just go back to being fitters in terms of content, don't we? We do. And it becomes like university and, you know, where you kind of... And that's a ghastly that. thought. As a <laughs> well, professor... As a professor in education and enterprise, I can tell you that's a ghastly thought. They are not solo independent beings. You know, they do need community and we learned that in COVID. We did a big thing when COVID ended where we interviewed a lot of these students and a lot of our students and filmed them answering questions about, well, what are the things that they learned and the power of friendships, the power of connection with their teachers. It was the most beautiful reflections by students from year three upwards 
all the way up through to year 12 around what they missed when they weren't on site. I, I teach year seven maths at the moment and I've got a, um, a little kid who is just honestly, <laughs> you, by the time I know a child's story like too well, you know that there's a lot going on in their world. But year seven camp went off came back took you know leadership loved being outdoors came back she's just a completely different woman um still herself still her personality and everything but just at peace and that absolutely plays out in year seven maths I can tell you so so creating opportunities where you connect where it's not all around judging their intellect I think is a, a really important part too okay that's relationship and connection let's talk about leadership of teachers to improve deepen construct their pedagogical knowledge and expertise. How do we do that? <laughs> well, give me give, give, give me one or two or three <laughs> practical examples, you know, of what you would say to a starting principal who walks into your office and says, what's something that I, we could be doing next year that's going to help teachers improve their pedagogical knowledge and expertise? Yes. Predominantly, I would go evidence-based decision-making. So by and large, if when you ask a department or you ask teachers if they're good, they'll go, yes, we are, we're really good. And, um, and you go, how do you know? Well, we just are. And so that sense of... Um, Hasn't changed much for the last 30 years, has it? Really? No, and it's, well, I think it is changing. I think this is the really interesting thing around embracing evidence-based or evidence-informed practice um, is absolutely the way of the future. So I 100% agree and support with professional judgment and professional knowledge. And um, Jim Tognolini's work in this area, I think is just outstanding around, uh, you have the right to make judgments on, on and assessing a child's ability. If you're a professional and you're professional and you know what you're talking about. At the same time, the ability of the human to delude themselves as to how good they are really knows no bounds. We're exceptionally good, particularly in education, because it's not just a job. It's like I get my heart, I put it out on my sleeve, I wander around. Um, it, it is a very personal profession. And so when you criticise my teaching, you criticise me. Mm. And we we have to, A, accept that and B, toughen up a little bit because I am not going to get better if I don't get direct feedback around this about how I'm doing, particularly from a pedagogical perspective. So we should be forensic in what worked here, what didn't work here, why did it work for that kid but not for that kid, what have I got to do, What what is the issue? And and not taking everything so personally. Like, I, you know, we're looking at the Commonwealth Games and, and these athletes are out there and they have a coach for the nutrition and they have a coach for their health and they have a coach for their sport and they have a in water polo, they have a coach for their left arm and they have a coach for their right arm. And I'm like, yeah, and we get so profoundly and deeply offended if we go, we'd like to have someone come in your classroom and provide feedback to you. It's like, oh, honestly. So I think that is something of the past and that I go, if you want to get better with your pedagogical practice, with your knowledge, don't tell me you're good enough. I'm not interested. I'm not making the measure based on how your children perform unless they are performing aberrantly compared to how they're performing in other areas. So me, I teach the bottom year seven maths class. I adore these kids to bit. We're doing equations. We're already behind the rest of year seven. There is no point judging my teaching ability on how these kids are going to go when we do a whole year across the board assessment. 
you absolutely can judge me if I'm teaching a class or judge my practice if when I do a class these kids are performing at one level somewhere else but in my class with these questions they're they're not performing and we own that it doesn't mean you get fired it doesn't mean you get sacked it just means you've got to get better at it right like I'm a better teacher now than I was when I first began I'm not as good as someone who's been teaching in the profession and I will now never be as good as someone who's been teaching in the profession for the last 20 years because I just haven't been doing it. So I go to the head of department meetings or the maths meetings or the exchanges that we have and I sit there and I listen and I learn from them because they're better teachers than I am. Only if they're prepared to learn from their experience along the way. Otherwise, you get that 20 years of the, of the same year the, rather than 20 years of, uh, of accumulated expertise. So many of the things that you're talking about here, though, Brian, I just want to push back a little bit on the, the notion of the things of the past, if I can, because yeah, yeah. I think the thing of the past around it was the acceptance of the notion that the teacher was all-powerful and all-knowing simply because they were, they were a teacher. I'm going to sit back and look at the, the classes I was teaching in 1988, for goodness sake, and what an ordinary teacher Last I must century. have been at that yeah, point. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. As a 19-year-old in a yeah. classroom full of 18-year-olds who were acutely aware of the fact that I was bright and knew stuff but had almost no understanding of how to teach whatsoever and my, my self-consciousness around that i actually think that all of the trades that you're talking about are blind spots in our humanity that it's a constant job of a school leader and 50 years from now school leaders are going to be wrestling with exactly these same problems part of the reason why our profession struggles about evidence-based work and is is because it is self-conscious because we are we are deeply concerned our, our egos don't like the idea that perhaps we're not as good as we think we are and or, or secretly and yet, but and our, 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 our fears and our knowledge that we know deep inside that we're not as good as we think we are will be revealed to everybody in the shame. Okay, and but, we know, but in sport, we accept it. In, yes. in high-performing teams, anywhere, in any profession, anywhere, yes. it is an absolute given that you reflect, that you get feedback, that you, you have to come to terms with the fact that you are not perfect. And that goes to the conversation we had right at the beginning of the first session where, where this to be a principal, you have to let that go. You don't have the right to sit there in your arrogance going, I'm the principal, I'm the boss, do what I say. It's like, what are you, what are you even talking about? What does that even mean? I mean, one of the things I'm looking at at the moment is this whole role. This is not so much to do with pedagogical practice, but it's the same mindset, the role of supervision for principals where you, you are in your timetable, expected to turn up and meet with somebody and unpack with them a situation that you didn't handle that well and what could you have done differently. But you don't ever give principals the option of that because otherwise they'd not do it. You do it like psychologists where they have to go. It's part of mm. their training, right? Like so. And one of the other challenges, once again, this is not so much pedagogical practice, but the principles are the same. Principles as in L-E-S. Um, I, I often think about being in these roles a little like have you read lord of the rings only 21 times by the time i was 11 <laughs> okay so in that everybody... <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit self-revealing you know, yeah, no, right. i love it and not everyone will but in this in this there is a, a magic ring if you will and when you wear it everybody thinks that they're immune to its powers everyone thinks that it's a, you're immune to its powers but the reality is the longer that you wear this ring the more you turn into Gollum. And Gollum was this little wizened up little monster, you know. And it's very true for principals and it's very true for teachers that 
if you stay in the role and you do not allow people to speak into your life and to reflect back to you about who you are and what you're doing, if every time they do that you get offended or miffed or write somebody off, you eventually turn into Gollum, all right? You don't have the ability to take that ring off, put so it aside and go, just talk to me. Like, And that's where and, the humility comes in, right? Um, yeah, and look, it's you know, it's like again, if I if I if I look back on my career and the people who are close to me as colleagues in and around it, there are those who turned into Gollum and there are those who didn't. And the ones who turned into Gollum, I don't have anything to to learn from them any further, except that I don't want to become Gollum. I've got a friend who's got a little book, a little notebook, and says things I won't do when I'm the boss, and writes that down in yeah. in there. What we've drifted onto, of course, is the third a third area around leadership, which is about how we lead to model character and personal growth. I do believe that there's a personality type that's inherently drawn into teaching and that there are common blind spots. And we've been talking about some of those common blind spots. I think it's different from from high-performance athletes because high-performance athletes are so motivated to win Mm -hmm. that they will take any advantage that they possibly can along the way. And they learn very quickly that having a good coach if it gives you, you know, 0.4 of a second advantage, you go with that coach. If that coach doesn't give you the advantage, you switch and you go to another coach around that. I actually think, you know, the difference between the best performing athletes and those who aren't quite often is is their ability at some point to actually step away from their coach. They become so reliant on their coaches. But there's a whole area of, of high performance learning that perhaps you and I can talk about another time because, you know, that's something I'm, I'm, I'm working on in the background. But mm-hmm. I think part of the, the notion of teachers is that we are concerned about reflection because of what it will reveal about us because it might reveal the goal in all of us because when we look in the mirror, perhaps all we see is the goal and we see the mistakes and so on. So we become, we're very vulnerable and we, we live in cultures where we're scared to be vulnerable. So how do we model, how do we lead to help people to model the character of personal growth? What can we do to help schools become environments where people um, are less frightened? Because they will talk fear. You know that, you know that. You hear them talk this all the time. They call it the language of fear. Even though you sit there and you go, fear, why? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's absolutely spot on. And hardly the language of fear is also, and this probably may cause a bit of reaction with people who listen, I also think it's a really lazy response because while there are some environments that there is, a, it's a toxic culture and there is bullying, by and large, schools are actually great communities and they're great places. And this obsession around it's got to be a safe space, I, I agree with that, but I also go, point to me exactly where the fear is Point to me where there is evidence that someone has been vilified or fired. Now, you might have, the minute I say this, someone will go, oh, well, I, I remember back, you know, in this situation. But I'm just talking about in normal schools, in normal situations. Well, every, 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 every teacher has the capacity to tell you the story of the day when a parent mm. was tough on them. And the parent was tough on them because parents get tough on occasions. Mm-hmm. And the teacher usually did something which cause the parent to be tough on them. But, you know, there's fault on both sides, usually. Then those teachers will use that horror story as a reason to shy away from any engagement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They won't grow into the moment. No. And I think the really interesting question, I mean, I have parents who go off at me and 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 their ability to personalise it when they do go off is incredibly hurtful. And there are strategies, and which I share and talk about with staff 
around how you separate from that. One of, one of the challenges, you talk about personality types who you know gravitate towards teaching and to leadership. There is no doubt that we have a let's save the world kind of complex that we want to be loved, we, we want people to be happy with us, that by and large we are relatively conservative and we colour between the lines and do everything well, you know, and, and right. And getting to the point where you go, that will not work in education, in especially moving forward, we have to know that we are not going to be loved, that people are going to actively disagree with us. And you have to be able to go, okay, what could I learn from here? Like, how did this escalate so quickly? What did I do that made it worse? What did I do that worked? And what ultimately is just one of those things where you're going to have to walk away. Now, being as a leader, how I role model that, how I role model when I'm affected, how I role model or or I act when someone comes to me having just been in the wind tunnel, which is what we call it, when someone's yelling at you or, you know, losing it and your hair's kind of, you know, streaming behind you with the ferocity of it all. We have to be continually role modeling this and not making it a performance conversation, but making it a growth conversation. And that is hard because A, your ego gets involved. You want to justify yourself. The number of times I go, can I just get some background on this information on this child? Well, have you met the parents? You know, and I go, well, here's a complaint. Have you met this child? You know, and you're like, okay, just stop. Can we remove ourselves from the emotion side of it? Actually look factually at what happened and why would this child be upset or why would this parent be upset? What have we done that's exacerbated that? What did we do or think we did that we didn't do? You know, all of these kind of almost forensic debriefing around these incidents and doing it in a group. And this is why I'm interested in this whole concept of group supervision and and so forth, uh, particularly with senior leaders, doing in a group where you can actually learn from the experience of others. And at the end of it, you all stand up and you walk out and you go, well, that was an interesting learning experience. You know, if you compare it with doctors and medicine, with their teaching rounds, where they go around, they talk about, now there are real issues with teaching rounds at at times, and I get that, but patients die and patients die or they're not well treated or things go wrong, that ability they have to get together and to debrief over what happened, particularly in the hospital system, is one that I think needs to happen in schools, but it requires us not to be defensive. And for us to be able to take the ring off and put it to one side and go, what just happened here? And that, I think, is really hard for people. Funnily enough, this conversation has has led into that fourth area, which is about creating impact and making a difference. The challenge of being a researcher is, is that you inevitably come up with a model of you know, four, five, or six. Usually with us, it's six because we like six. So you usually come up with six categories. It's it's this very reductionist sort of thing, but you forget the complexity to which you referred so compellingly in our first conversation last week. What we do in creating impact and making difference, it's all about character and personal growth, and it's all about pedagogical knowledge, and it's all about relationship and connection mm-hmm. along the way. And when you work on one, you probably drop down a little bit on the other, but then you raise yourself up in, in another area, you know, in a, in a kind of unexpected way because that's just the way these sorts of things can happen. One of the ways, one of the ways that I, I do it is I make sure that there is always kind of regularly I'm in a position where I'm out of my depth because if I, if I sit in my office and I'm comfortable and everything I can deal with, I, I can deal with, I, I get complacent. I begin to believe 
what people say. And whereas if I'm in a situation where I'm out of my depth or I actually don't know what to do and I get that sick feeling in my stomach, <laughs> you mm. know, or, and you're like, oh, you know, like I think I should have become an accountant, you know, I should have done something else. That's good because it it just, there's a humility in going, okay, you don't know what you're talking about here. What are you going to do? How are you going to navigate your way through it? You've not dealt with this type of a family before or with this family situation. What are you going to do? And I go, I actually don't know. So what does that look like, you know? But that feeling, that that feeling of like, I could be in trouble here or I've done something wrong. I never actually want to lose that because that's what, keeps me okay how are you going to understand this what are you going to do here who can you learn from who's done something like this before what advice can I get you know and even if the result is imperfect I've grown through it a bit it's really hard I I often talk about leadership you know there, there are two different types of leadership and the first is like climbing a ladder and you get better at your job and you tick the boxes and you you work your way up to the top but the kind of leadership we're talking about here there's a second ladder next to you. And to get to that, you have to let go of the first ladder and go, you know, yes, you're good at your job and yes, you can tick all the boxes and you're a great head of curriculum or whatever, you know, you got to let go, you go into free fall and you hold onto the bottom rung of this second ladder. And this second ladder is like Doctor Who's TARDIS. Nothing is what it seems. You open the door and you go, oh, wow. Okay. This is where if you really want to be good at leadership, it's never about you. It is about the people. It's about human nature. When I when I have to sign on the on the and I land back at Sydney Airport and they're like, you know, what's your profession? And I'm like, oh, you know, call me what you want. But what I actually am is a student of human nature. And that's all I ever do is learn about humans and what makes them tick and what motivates them and what drives them away and how do you engage. And, and I feel like I'm on the first rung still of this ladder because it is just such a complex discipline it's a complex world but that's where the true leadership is not on the first ladder it's on the second ladder i reckon we might leave it there for today that's all right brian because i just don't know again i don't know where to quite where to take it from this and i'm going to need gonna need some time to go away and think about what comes next thank you so much again for unpacking the complexity that lies all around this i think it's really really helpful for our listeners and a broader audience to understand what the nature of the complexity is because outsiders looking in on the world of school all have an experience of it, of course. And when you ask them to reflect on their own experience and their own growth, they'll talk to you about the complexity and yet at the same time, particularly when the emotion's up, they'll talk to you about a simplicity around it. I can, I'm hearing in my mind a conversation I had with a board of a school fairly recently and one of the board members sitting there and go, and where's the accountability for the outcomes? And I just had to bite my tongue on that because I wanted to launch into a whole thing because I've seen a couple of your tweets in and around this, that, and the other. I'm thinking, right, and I just thought, you know what, we'll just do this one slowly. Leave this one for today and we'll work out where we get to next time in terms of that because it's going to take way too long to unpack the notion of accountability and it doesn't matter how much Michael Fullen or anything like that that I throw at people right now, mm. they're not going to believe it from where they are. So it's taking them on that journey along the way and helping them to understand. Thanks, Bryony. You're welcome. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.